Well, good morning to Calvary Bible Church this great Easter morning. We are glad each one of you are here. We want to welcome you. And if you have your Bibles this morning, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We are going to be looking at part of the greatest section in the Bible and all the Bible on the resurrection. We heard in the announcements this morning that Al Brown, a longtime member of Calvary Bible Church, passed away last week. We heard that Judy Wong's mother passed away last week. Many of you have lost loved ones recently or in the last year. And death is a part of life. And as a pastor, I often go to funerals or officiate at funerals. But I kind of like them. I kind of like funerals. It's not that I'm morbid. I like them because... I know what the Bible says to those who know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. And so every funeral that I attend, I'm just encouraged to know what joys await me. And I actually long to die, especially when I'm preparing my funeral messages and I'm talking about heaven and what's to come. I I just kind of hope I just get struck down real quick. And um, and then I could escape. Uh, but God has kept me here so far. And funerals are good because they remind me that I am not going to live forever. I am going to die. Someday a bunch of people will probably get around and I'll be in a box and they'll say some things about me and preach the word and stick me in the ground. And I want to make sure I think about that because... I want to have my priorities right. And funerals can make you focus your priorities. They have a way of cleansing all the trash out of your life and to make you realize, man, I got to get with it, man. I cannot pine my life away. I'm going to be dead eventually. And you know what? I have news for you too. You're going to die. If there ever was a statistic that was a good one, It's that you're going to die. Everybody dies. The death rate holds at 100%. The Bible says it is appointed for man to die once. And that means you. And some of you younger people may be sitting out there and you may be thinking, you know, I'm glad I'm young. I'm glad I have my whole life ahead of me. I haven't even graduated from high school yet. I just want you to know, your whole life may end this afternoon. Your whole life may come to an end in a tragic car accident on the way home from church. Maybe a drunk driver might plow into you and kill you. Maybe you might die of an aneurysm. I had a cousin who was 21 years old, an athlete, was putting ornaments on the Christmas tree and dropped dead. I have done funerals for babies six weeks, old, six weeks old, for teenagers, for young men in their early 20s in the prime of life who were not sick at all, but because of some accident, some unforeseen thing, they were taken home in a moment. All of us will die, and we don't know when, but we know we will. 
And I would agree that you have your whole life ahead of you. But if we look at the scriptures, we find out your whole life doesn't end when you die. Eternity begins. And after you attend enough funeral services, you realize that death is a very important thing to consider. I mean, you could be an evolutionist. And if you're an evolutionist and you believe that because of a lot of chance and a whole lot of nothing, some amoebas were formed and then some fish and some amphibians and some monkeys and eventually your great 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 grandfather dropped his tail dropped out of a tree and here you are the result of that long line if you're an evolutionist you just believe that you're going to die and go back to the earth from which you accidentally came it's over there's no more you you're just a chance you're alive and it's a chance that you die Or you may be like some who teach that if you die and you don't believe in Jesus, you don't go to hell, you are not tormented forever and ever, you just are burn up. You're like one of those Duraflame logs. You you throw them on the fire, they burn a little while and you're gone. Some people believe that. Still others teach reincarnation, that life kind of cycles and you die and you don't know what you're going to be when you come back. I mean, you might be a toad. Or a leech, or a snake, or maybe even a stink bug. You just come back again and again in these cycles of life. And in each of these views of death, your individuality, your personhood, what really makes you, you, is obliterated, gone, there's nothing left. And that is why people who believe these things are often very selfish and very immoral and very indulgent. You see, if you believe that this life is all, then you've got to grab for all the gusto. You've got to get as much of this world as you can. You be as selfish as you can, be as ruthless as you can, stuff as many of the pleasures of the world in as you can, and have as much fun as you can, because when it's over, baby, it's over. The Greek philosophers did believe in life after death, but they believed in what was called dualism. Dualism is the concept that everything physical is evil, but everything spiritual is good. And that when you die, you finally just shed your evil body, which is kind of scriptural, and then your spirit lives on in perfection. But they didn't believe in the resurrection. And the Apostle Paul had to deal with the Greeks at Athens when he was preaching at Mars Hill. And he was presenting them the gospel. And when he got to the place about the resurrection, this is what Acts 17.32 says, And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. You know, the air breaks is what we call them in our house. Sneering. Oh, come on. People don't rise from the dead. 
You see, the Greeks were willing to believe in life after death, but they could not handle the resurrection. And some Jews were influenced by Greek thought. The very progressive Jews, the sect called the Sadducees, if you remember in the gospel as you read along, Jesus deals with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Oftentimes when it mentions the Sadducees, it puts in little brackets there who say there is no resurrection. And that is why they were sad, you see. And according to Acts 2.38, some of the Sadducees believed in annihilation, just like evolution is due today. You're just gone. There's no angels. There's no afterlife. You're just, it's, when it's over, it's over. And today, false teachers, like the flies of Egypt, are swarming to try and tell you that the resurrection is not true. That Jesus did not rise from the dead. That finally, after 2,000 years, they finally figured it out. The resurrection didn't happen. And these people are self-proclaimed Bible scholars. They have pulse hole diggers, you know, PhDs. They, they are smart. And if you don't believe them, they'll tell you they're smart. They're ordained clergy. And of course, all the liberal papers and all the liberal magazines, oh, they love to print articles by these people who will tell you that, oh, well, you know, Jesus was a historical figure, but he actually didn't rise from that. It was just kind of a hopeful thing. And every place in the Bible where it talks about the resurrection, it doesn't really mean what it says. It means something different, which means that there was no resurrection, even though this other was. And some of you may have come here this morning not believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ or any resurrection for that matter. You know, after all, we live in the modern age. We have computers. We have cars. We have science. And let's be frank. People don't rise from the dead. You've never seen it happen. I've never seen it happen. We don't know anybody who's died in a day or a week or a month or a year later or came back to life. There's no evidence for that, that we can measure, nothing repeatable. So you reason to yourself, well, the resurrection, you know, I mean, it's, it's kind of like a myth, you know, the tooth fairy, fantasy fiction. It's not real. And what it comes down to is this. Will you or will you not believe the word of God? Will you believe sin-cursed, fallen men who are continually changing their minds and contradicting themselves over the years? Or will you believe the infallible and inerrant word of God which tells us there is a resurrection of all people, both believers and unbelievers? That's what it comes down to. You probably remember the story of Abraham. Abraham is the father of the nation Israel. And if you remember the story of Abraham, Abraham had to offer up his son Isaac. What is unique is, is that Abraham and Sarah had Isaac in their way old age. Sarah was barren all of her life, never had a child. Then when she got really old, God said, you're going to have a child. And so they finally got a child. Isaac, the promised child. And God said, through this child, one would come 
through whom all the nations of the earth would invest, and this child would be the promised child that would a great nation would come from. And God says, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only begotten son, the son whom you love, the son of your old age, and go offer him up as a sacrifice. Now, if you're a parent, this is an amazing story. It is an amazing story because Abraham doesn't hesitate. He doesn't waver. He grabs his son. He gets up the next morning. He takes him up there. He even makes his son carry his own wood so he could burn him on it. He binds him, lays him on the wood, pulls out the knife. He's going to slam and God says, stop. I know that you fear me now. And God provided a ram that just so happened to be nearby, caught in the thicket by its horn. And that ram was the substitute for Isaac. And you wonder, why was Abraham able to just, without flinching, obey God in such a difficult command? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us, the author of Hebrews tells us that Abraham believed God would raise Isaac from the dead. You see, if you are Abraham and God tells you this son of yours is going to be the father of a great nation and the man through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed and you're going to sacrifice him as a boy, then one or two things have to be true. Either God is a liar or God's going to raise him from the dead. There's no other option. And so Abraham knew God wasn't a liar and so he believed that God was going to raise him from the dead. So he thought, well, I'll slay him and then God will raise him from the dead. Job. Job, who lived around the same time as Abraham believed in life after death, and in Job 19.26, this is what Job said, Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see and not another. My heart faints within me. Job says, even after I'm dead, even after my corpses rotten in the grave i am going to see god face to face and the thought of it just made him once a faint it was so joyous to him the concept of life after death isaiah speaking of the people of israel said in isaiah 26 29 your dead will live their corpses will rise you will lie in you who lie in the dust awake and shout for joy Daniel in Daniel 12.2 said, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Jesus in John 5.25-29 taught the same thing as Daniel. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, An hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Then he goes on to say in verse 28, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. All four Gospels present in detail the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In detail. If you go through the book of Acts, you find Peter and Paul constantly preaching to people that the resurrection is true. 
When you go through the epistles to the church, references to the resurrection of both Christ and the future resurrection of believers are sprinkled all the way through there like cars on the freeway. They're everywhere. And the Bible teaches that both believers and unbelievers will be resurrected. What that means is, is God will reassemble the dead people who have died and their spirits will be reunited with their reassembled immortal body that is fit for one of two places, either to be cast into hell, to suffer the torments of hell forever and ever in the lake of fire, or to be fit for eternal glory and happiness and blessing with Jesus Christ. But all, Jesus says, will come forth, both the just and the unjust. And maybe you didn't come here this morning to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Maybe you came here just because some family members wanted you to come or because a friend asked you to come. Or maybe you came here because it's just kind of a tradition in your family. But in your heart, deep down inside, you don't really believe in the resurrection. Well, it just so happens that in the church of Corinth, there were some people there who had been influenced by the Greeks and they didn't believe in the resurrection either. And it just so happens that the Apostle Paul thought the resurrection was such a huge deal that he would spend the biggest chapter in all of 1 Corinthians discussing the resurrection. And it just so happens we're going to look at that passage this morning. So if you have your Bible, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Now what we're going to do is, is I want to give you some context of our text. We're going to look at verses 12 through 19, but you need to see the big picture and what's coming before it and leading up to it because it's very significant to the meaning of verses 12 through 19. Now in this chapter, Paul first discusses the importance of the resurrection. We'll look at that in a minute. Then the fact of the resurrection, then the consequences of rejecting the resurrection, then the order of the resurrection and the nature of resurrected bodies, and finally the final outcome of those who are resurrected. But Paul begins by explaining the importance of the resurrection. Look at 15 verse 1. Paul says this, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand by which also you are saved. Now notice here, Paul says, brethren, I preach to you the gospel. What is, what is that term? You know, we hear of gospel singers and gospel this and gospel that. I mean, what is that word? It is a word we usually only hear in Christian circles. And some of you who maybe aren't familiar with Christian jargon might not know what gospel is. You know, I hear the, it's the gospel truth. What is that? The word gospel means simply good news. That's what it means. You could go in your Bible, whenever you read gospel, you could say good news. So Paul says, I preach to you the good news. And that good news which I preach to you, you received. That is, you took it to yourself. You owned it. And, not only that, you are standing on it. In which you stand, he says. You're placing your trust in it. And not only that, notice what he says. At the beginning of verse 2, by which also you are saved, if 
You hold fast the word which I preach you unless you believe in vain. He says, listen, if you have received it, if you're standing on it, that word has saved you. That message, that gospel message, that good news has saved you. Saved you from what? Saved you from the eternal wrath of God which, which will be poured out on all sinners who will not accept Jesus Christ. And this is good news. The gospel, the message that you must believe in order to be saved. And notice, you have to believe this in order to be saved. This is the and the only gospel. There is no other you can't just say, well, you know, um, I, um, you know, I know I'm a Christian because, you know, I, I call myself a Christian. Well, that doesn't make you a Christian. Well, I grew up in a Christian home. That doesn't make you a Christian. My parents are Christians and my grandparents and great-great-grandparents. That doesn't make you a Christian either. Oh, but sometimes I read my Bible. That doesn't make you a Christian. But sometimes I go to church. That doesn't make you a Christian. Some people say, you know, I go to church every Easter and every Christmas. I, I just, I go and I'm faithful. He says, but it's boring because they're always preaching about the resurrection and the birth of Christ. I'll come on a different day. No, you're not saved because you go to church every once in a while or every week. You're not saved because you read a Bible. You're not saved because you prayed a prayer. You're not saved because you went forward at an altar call. There's only one way to be saved. And that is to hear the gospel, understand the gospel, and receive the gospel in faith. That's it. There's no other way. And it makes you ask the question, so what is the gospel? Well, he tells us. Look at verse 3. For I delivered to you... As of first importance, what I also received. Well, Paul received this gospel. What is it, Paul? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. First thing. And that he was buried. Second thing. And that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is the good news. This is what saves you. This is the only thing that saves anyone. No one will ever be saved unless it's by the gospel. None of us here will get in any other way. Good intentions won't save you. Trying hard to be good won't save you. It's only understanding the gospel, the person work of Jesus Christ, to understand that Jesus, God incarnate, became a man, lived a perfect life in this world. That he willingly offered himself up as a sacrifice. That he underwent crucifixion and was crucified for your sins. Died in your place. Suffered the wrath of God in your stead as a substitute for you. So that if you would believe in him, he would take his righteousness and give it to you freely. That is the gospel. And that Jesus, after he died, was buried and then rose again, proving he was who he said he was. 
That is the only way to be saved. Now, if you don't believe the resurrection, then you are not a Christian, no matter what you think. Because the gospel has as its core the resurrection. So if you take out the resurrection, you take out the good news, and it becomes bad news. But you say to yourself, but it's so hard to believe in the resurrection. I mean, I can handle that Jesus was crucified. A lot of people were crucified back then. I I can handle that he was buried. I mean, everybody dies, and almost everybody gets buried except for those who are cremated. But this resurrection thing is hard for me to believe. And it's true. It's the hardest part to believe, but it is the thing you must believe if you're going to get to heaven. And Paul wants to now present a case for the resurrection. And so look at what he says in verse 5. He says, after he died and rose again, look what he says in verse 5, and then he appeared to Cephas. Now, Cephas is Paul's affectionate name for the apostle Peter. He appeared to the apostle Peter, and then to the twelve, which is the name of those twelve disciples that Jesus trained. Verse 6, after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. How many people does it do you need in a court of law to testify something is true? Two witnesses. Here he says, not only do we have Peter still alive, not only do we have all the apostles still alive, not only that, but we have 500 of the brethren. And guess what? Most of them are still alive, even though if you have died, fallen asleep. He says, go talk to them. These are first-hand witnesses who saw the resurrected Lord. And then he says, he appeared to James, verse 7, then to all the apostles again. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Paul says, is that enough first-hand witnesses? How many do you need? That's enough. Lord Caldecott, former Chief Justice of England, said, The claims of Jesus Christ, namely his resurrection, has led me as often as I have tried to examine the evidence to believe it is a fact beyond dispute. Lord Lindhurst, High Steward of Cambridge University, regarded as one of the greatest legal minds in the history of England, said, quote, I know pretty well what evidence is, and I tell you, such evidence as that for the resurrection has never been broken down yet, end quote. But I want you to know there's something more sure than all the lawyers who have tried out. If It's a fascinating thing to study the resurrection and find out that many great minds and very many bitter people who hated Christianity and hated Christians decided they would go out, examine all the evidence, examine the scriptures, and prove the resurrection was wrong and then became believers and now followers of Jesus Christ. The evidence is compelling It's overwhelming. But even if all the greatest legal minds refuse to believe in the resurrection, it's still true because the word of God says it's true. And let God be found true, though every man be a liar. When it comes down to this, who are you going to believe? 
Are you going to place your eternal destiny in the hands of sin-cursed men who contradict each other, who weren't there, who don't know? Are you going to put your trust in the everlasting God and the surety of his word? Paul wants to deal with this issue of the resurrection. And so he does in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19 in a very thorough way. Look there and follow along as I read. Paul says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your preaching is vain. Our faith is also vain. Moreover, we are found, even found, to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ and this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. This text confronts the serious doctrinal error of believing there is no resurrection. And Paul pulls out all of his theological guns on this one. And he just wants to obliterate this enemy doctrine. And he seeks to kill it dead by pointing out seven consequences which arise from believing there is no resurrection. And he starts out with the biggest bomb first. This is the nuclear warhead consequence. Look at the text. What is it? If there is no resurrection from the dead, your Savior is dead and can't save you. Where do I see that? Well, Paul says this five times in eight verses. Look at the last part of verse 13. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. If the dead are not raised, look at the first part of verse 14. Christ has not been raised. Look at the end of verse 15. He raised Christ whom he did not raise. If the de- in fact, the dead are not raised. Look at the end of verse 16. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Look at the first part of v- verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised... That is the key problem. You see, if men in general are not raised and Christ was a man, then he's not raised either. This is the huge problem. And you say, well, why is it such a big deal? Can't you believe Jesus was a good teacher, that he was a prophet, that he was a Messiah, that he's the Savior? I mean, do you have to believe in the resurrection? Well, Paul has already addressed that. We've already looked at that in verses 1 through 4. What is the gospel which saves? Christ died, buried, rose again. That is the gospel. You take out the rise again, you don't have the gospel, you don't have the good news, no one is saved. It means Jesus didn't rise from the dead. You don't have a savior who can save you. He didn't conquer death. He didn't prove he was the Messiah. He didn't prove he was the Son of God. He didn't fulfill his own prophecies. 
Psalm 1610 promises that God would not allow his holy one to undergo decay. Jesus himself said, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth before he'll be raised. He said over and over again that I'm going to die, go to Jerusalem, be crucified, die, and after three days I'll rise again. And even after he died... The Pharisees got together with the chief priests and they went to Pilate and said, Hey man, we got to guard the tomb. Well, why? Well, because when Jesus was alive, he kept teaching that he was going to be crucified and die and after three days rise again. And we think his disciples are going to steal his body away. So what we want you to do is we want you to guard the tomb with a Roman guard. I mean, how many people do you know have guards at their, their burial site? You ever gone to Forest Lawn and see some people, armed people, standing around guarding somebody who's stuck in a hole in the ground, covered up? That's not usual. Jesus made it perfectly clear that he would rise from the dead, but I'm telling you, if he did not rise from the dead, he is still dead. And dead people don't save anyone. You can't be saved by a dead man. That is the first problem. And flowing from that problem are six more consequences of rejecting the resurrection. Let's look at them. If the dead are not risen, Christ has not been raised, then the gospel you preach to others is vain. Look at verse 14, Paul says, And if Christ has not been risen, then our preaching is vain. And what did they preach? Well, he just told us. He preached the gospel. It's worthless to preach the gospel. You know, a lot of people don't preach the gospel because they're scared or people might get mad at them or they've been persecuted before or they just don't have the Bible verses memorized or whatever. But many of us have shared the gospel. Many of us have seen people come to Christ and isn't it great? It is so great to talk to somebody. Do you believe you're a sinner? Well, yeah, most people agree with that. Do you believe God's a holy God? Yeah. The scriptures say he must punish sin. Do you believe that? Well, yeah. Yeah. And you're a sinner, right? So you're going to be punished, right? Well, this is your option. Either you suffer for eternity in hell for your own sins to pay the penalty of your infinite offense against the infinite holy God, or... If you want, you can repent, turn from your sins, turn from your wicked way, and receive Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, placing your faith in his death, burial, and resurrection to save you. What do you have it? And you know what? Most people say, eh, I'll pay the penalty of my own sins. But a few, those people break down... And God does a miracle right there in front of you. And they come to salvation in Jesus Christ. And their lives change. That is the gospel. But Paul says, listen, if Christ isn't risen from the dead, then our preaching is vain. The word vain means to be empty or without content, purpose, effect, or result, devoid of truth, foolish and futile. That's what the gospel is. That whole message of Jesus dying is worthless. It's a myth. It's verbal wind. It has no content and no effect. 
You go in those public restrooms, you put your hands into those little hand dryers and all that hot air comes out. That's what the gospel is, just hot air. All believers are called to preach the gospel, but if you do away with the resurrection, then you're preaching a myth, futility. But that's not all. Look at the text where we see the third consequence of not believing the resurrection. If Christ has not been risen, your faith is worthless and vain. Look at verse 14. After Paul says, the gospel is vain. If Christ has not been risen, he says, your faith also is vain. Same word, meaning empty, without content, purpose, effect, result, devoid of truth, foolish and futile. And then in verse 17, if you look in the middle of verse 17, he adds, your faith is worthless. This word worthless is the same word that Paul uses to describe those in Romans 1.21 who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And they become futile or worthless in their speculations. Just totally shot. If there is no resurrection, your personal faith in Jesus Christ is dirt. It's worthless. It's trash. It's garbage. It does nothing if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. If you are a Christian... Have you seen your life change? I know you have. Why? Because the Bible says anyone who knows Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, anyone who repents of their sins and believes in the gospel, becomes a new creature. They become regenerate and they change. Their life is transformed. You may have been thumbing through the, the bulletin. You come across the back of that green sheet and it says, Wanted. And there is a real life mugshot of some guy on there that says, Do you know who that is? It's one of our elders. You're thinking, really? I kid you not. Some of you are looking. Look in there. You're thinking, that, that's, a, that's a real, actual mugshot of one of our elders, our beloved elders. You look at that thing and you're saying, what is this? You can't even recognize him anymore. He's not even the same guy. He's been changed, transformed by the grace of God. He is no longer what he used to be. Now, if Christ has not been raised, what does that mean? It means that all that life transformation that you see in your life, that you see in other people's lives... Wasn't life transformation by Jesus Christ. All those of us who have been delivered from sins and delivered from things we were captive in and, and all this enslavement to all these carnalities, all of those life-changing things that have undergone the last five or ten or twenty years. Many of you have been Christians for many years and you, you don't even begin to resemble what used to be. You've so radically changed all of that. Well, I just want you to know it wasn't because of Jesus. It wasn't because you're saved. There is no salvation. Jesus is dead. And it must have just happened by chance because you have a positive mental attitude and a myth. That's what that means. Your faith is worthless if there is no resurrection. And not only that, you followed a bunch of losers. Look at verse 15. Paul says, moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we, are, we have testified against God 
that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. If Christ has not been raised, then the apostles whose teaching the entire church follows are a bunch of liars. They're liars. The phrase in the text, verse 15, where it says, and we are found, that phrase is used of moral judgments in a court of law. You know, there's a a court case. You go there, you hear the evidence. A verdict is reached of either guilty or innocent. That's what the we are found. And Paul is saying this, listen, if the resurrection didn't take place, we've gone around preaching that it has. So that means we are convicted, we are tried, and found guilty as a bunch of liars. And why is this significant? Well, because uh, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 says the entire church is built on the foundation of what? The apostles' teaching. Now what is a foundation? The foundation is the part under the building under your house that supports the entire structure. If you don't have a foundation, the whole structure falls. What is he saying here? Listen, if you believe that the resurrection didn't take place, then all the apostles are liars and guess what? All the apostles are the foundation of the church and their whole testimony crumbles. Therefore, the whole church and everything it believes crumbles because it's all built on them. Let me ask you this. If you were going to invest some money, would you invest it with a broker who is a chronic liar? Would you do that? I wouldn't. If you owned a company, would you hire somebody who put in that thing... Their, their appointment application, any of their comments? Yeah, I always like to lie. <laughs> if you were going to have your car worked on, would you like to take your car to a mechanic who is known as a habitual liar? If you were going to have heart surgery, would you rather have a surgeon who is known to be honest and forthright or one who is a lying deceiver? The answer is simple. Everyone knows liars cannot be trusted. And I'm telling you, you would be a fool to trust a liar. And you would be the king of fools to trust 12 liars. And put your eternal destiny in the hands of a dozen liars. But that's exactly what Paul's saying is a consequence if, in fact, the dead are not raised. And if that was not enough in and of itself... If those consequences were not dreadful enough to put the normal thinking person into a cold sweat, Paul continues. Look at the end of verse 17 where we find the fifth consequence of rejecting the resurrection. Here Paul tells us, if Christ has not been raised, then you are still in your sin. Why is that? Well, this is why. Who was Christ? The Son of God. Being the Son of God, He was the Holy One, the Righteous One. He could not sin. The Scriptures say He was tempted in all ways. We are yet without sin. He lived a perfect life here on earth. And even though He took sins upon Him because He was holy and there was no deceit, no sin, no iniquity in His life, He was able to bear the sins of many, Isaiah says in Isaiah 53. And the proof that he was the Holy One of God was the fact that death had no power over him because the wages of sin is death. And if he was a sinner, death would have kept him in the grave, but it couldn't. Why? Because he was sinless. But if he stayed in the grave, like Confucius and Buddha and Joseph Smith, 
then that would mean he would be a sinner. He had no power over death. And if he's a sinner, he's not a savior. He can't atone for your sin. He's an imperfect sacrifice. And you and I are still in our sins. We are like a stake marinating in all the sins of all of our life. And we have nothing to look forward to but God's wrath poured out on us for all eternity. There is nothing to hope for. Nothing but pain and judgment. We have nothing to look forward to but the fires of hell that will eternally consume you, consume me, and the worms of conscience that will for all eternity gnaw at those who die in their sins. J. Vern McGee has stated, quote, If Christ is not raised, then my friend, you are a lost, hell-doomed sinner, and that is all you can ever be, end quote. But the consequences of not believing in the resurrection go beyond just you. They affect all the people around you, your family, your children, those you know and love. How do you say that? Look at verse 18. If Christ has not been raised, then you will never see those again who have died in Christ. Paul goes on to say in verse 18, Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Again, fallen asleep is a euphemism for dying. And what about those who have fallen asleep or died? Paul says they have perished. And this word perished is a strong word. It means perished in the lake of fire, eternal destruction, outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. All those things the scriptures say, that is what a final perishing. And think of the consequences of this. What if you knew that all you had to look forward to was eternal pain and suffering and misery, where you were in outer darkness by yourself, not partying down there in hell, by yourself in utter agony, in torment, in darkness, in dark agonizing flame, knowing the truth, knowing you rejected God, knowing you were selfish, knowing you wouldn't repent for all eternity every day. That even if you put all the days that have ever been on the calendar, if at the end of those days you could come out of hell, there would be some hope, but the text says forever and ever. And every funeral you went to would just be an enduring misery. Every time you read about anybody dying would just scare you. You would be incapacitated. You wouldn't be able to go outside because you'd afraid you might get a German die, you might get hit by a car, you might get hit by a meteorite, struck with lightning. And to know that you might die any day of causes that you have no control over since no one has control over the day they die, it would be enough to just put everybody in an apoplexy of fear. Every death would be a reminder that the grim reaper is knocking at your door waiting to take you home to pain. You would know in your heart you're never going to see your loved ones. You're never going to see your mom or your dad or your sister or your brother who have died. You will never have any hope of heaven. You will never be standing before the presence of the Lord, blameless with great joy. You will never have that perfect happiness the scriptures speak of. All believers who have died before you have all perished in hell, and you're going to be one of them. That's what Paul says is one of the consequences in verse 18. 
Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, just like those who have fallen asleep without Christ. And so where does this all take us? Look at verse 19, the last consequence. If Christ has not been risen, then you are to be pitied more than all men. Paul says, if we hope in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ did not rise from the dead. And if Christ did not rise from the dead, then what? Well, the only problem is that we don't have a savior. The gospel is vain. Your faith is vain. It's worthless. The apostles are false witnesses. They're a bunch of liars. You're still in your sins. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And we should be pitied. Of course we should be pitied. The word pitied describes the condition of someone who is so miserable in their condition of life that they are pitiable. Just so wretched, so miserable, so without hope, they just are pitiable. And Paul knows that we would be pitiable if the only hope we had is to trust Christ in this life, but in the life to come there's nothing to hope for. We'd be fools. And so that's why he puts that little modifier in there most. He just doesn't say we're pitiable. We are most pitiable. The most miserable, wretched group on the face of the earth would be Christians if there was no resurrection. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, quote, If Jesus Christ is not risen, he has done nothing for you. You are not saved and you are not pardoned. You are not renewed. It is all a myth, all a piece of deceit. If that fact be given up, that Christ rose from the dead, everything connected with salvation is also given up. And if you have come here this Easter morning not believing in the resurrection, you are lost. But there is good news. There is good news. There is the gospel. And that is the resurrection is true. That Jesus did rise from the dead. That it was testified by the apostles. It was testified by more than 500 witnesses at one time. It is testified by the fact that those apostles gave their lives and died martyrs' death to proclaim the resurrection. It's testified that Christians throughout the ages have been tortured and slain and martyred because they taught that the resurrection was true. It's testified by the fact that people all over the world, millions have had radical life transformations once they have repented of their sins and placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And if you have never confessed your sins, if you have never realized that Jesus Christ died on the cross so you through faith in him could receive his righteousness, you need to do that right now and not delay because life is short. You don't know when you're going to die. And so you need to know that today is the day of salvation. Listen to what Paul said to the Greeks at Athens, these Greeks who didn't believe in the resurrection. Listen to what he told them. And if you don't know Christ, take this to heart. Acts 17, 30 and 31. Paul says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man who is the appointed heir, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. You don't need to come forward. You don't need to raise your hand. You don't need to sign a prayer, but you need to repent. 
And you need to believe the gospel. You need to receive Jesus Christ and he will save you and he will transform you and you will have no need to fear death because Jesus said, he who believes in me, though he dies, shall live and will never die. For those of you who know the risen Lord, look at verse 50 of chapter 15 and we'll close with this. Paul says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed For this perishable must put on imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on imperishable, and this mortal will put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this great portion of Scripture. We thank you for this very detailed section addressing why it is so dangerous to reject the resurrection. Father, I pray that if there are people here today who have only professed you but have not possessed you, who have claimed to be Christians, but Father, with their deeds have denied you, I pray that this morning they would repent, they would turn, they would receive you as their Savior. Father, that they would believe the gospel message in faith, and Father, that you would change them and make them into new creatures. For the rest of us, may we have hope. May we have no fear. May we remember with Paul, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. And to be absent from the body is to be present with you. Father, may we long to be with you, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith and the joys set before us in heaven. And while we live on earth, may we run with endurance the race you have set before us that we might give you all the glory. See other people come to salvation as we preach the gospel. And Father, see you glorified more and more each and every day in our lives and the lives of others. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.